Beloved congregation of the Lord, will you turn with me again to Lord's Day 27 in the back of your Psalter on page 56, question and answer 74. Are infants also to be baptized? Yes, for since they as well as the adults are included in the covenant and church of God and since redemption from sin by the blood of Christ and the Holy Ghost, the author of faith, is promised to them no less than to the adult. They must therefore, by baptism as a sign of the covenant, be also admitted into the Christian church and be distinguished from the children of unbelievers, as was done in the Old Covenant or Testament by circumcision, instead of which baptism is instituted in the New Covenant. Well, in our series through the doctrines of the Heidelberg Catechism, we have been carefully working through this part of the Catechism because, among other reasons, uh, in our own context in Canada, we encounter a great many Christians, even brothers and sisters in the Lord, much beloved by ourselves, who have a different opinion on this matter. Those of the Baptist conviction would argue that it is improper to baptize the children of Christian believers. And in this way, they separate themselves from the Reformed churches following a practice which we would say is unbiblical. Indeed, there is no contradiction with saying that we love brothers and sisters in the Lord with whom we disagree, and as well saying that the word of God is not, therefore, unclear. Any lack of clarity which may come from our reading of the word of God resides not in the word of God itself, as we have labored to show, but from failing to subject our uh, beliefs to what it very clearly says on this matter. And as we've been carefully working through these doctrines uh, in uh, question and answer 74, we saw that it begins by speaking of the inclusion of children in the church of God. And we showed from both the Old Testament and the New, the pattern that is unchanged is that children are included in the visible church together with their parents both under the Old Testament as well as the New. We then focus not upon the entire visible church, which indeed is comprehended under the covenant of grace, but focused instead on the very heart of the covenant of grace. We could say the purpose of God's covenant and the purpose of the whole visible church. That is to redeem God's elect people in Jesus Christ. And considered from that point of view, we saw that there is a special uh, care which is to be taken in considering this matter of baptism. That where even children in their infancy may possess the grace of this covenant, and there is in a particular case no reason to think otherwise, 
then there is a special responsibility upon the Church of God to ensure that the entire uh, elect church possesses the sign and seal of their salvation. And so for the sake of the elect among them, all the children of believers are to be baptized. And having proceeded through the first two uh, arguments of the catechism here, we now proceed to the third, which especially brings in the matter of circumcision. Circumcision. We did consider circumcision all on its own as an illustration of a sacrament and what it means for a sacrament to signify and seal the graces of the covenant of grace in Jesus Christ. They set forth those invisible realities through a visible picture, and they confirm and ratify those graces, and they are appropriated in faith. But here there is an argument uh, that is made that baptism, because it has come in the place of circumcision, it is to be administered in the same way that is given to the children of believers. Notice how it uh, speaks in this way. They must therefore by baptism as a sign of the covenant be also admitted into the Christian church and be distinguished from the children of unbelievers as was done in the old covenant or testament by circumcision instead of which baptism is instituted in the new covenant. Now this, I believe, is uh, an argument of great weight, which our Baptist brothers and sisters, for the most part, have not given much consideration to. I know when I was raised in a Baptist communion and knew uh, no other uh, argument from the scriptures, when I was having this uh, understanding of infant baptism explained to me by the woman who would later become my wife, I sought to patiently explain to her, well, you see, shouldn't we not follow the example of Jesus Christ who received baptism as an adult and not as a child? And she responded in a way that surprised me and said, well, was he not also uh, circumcised as a child? And the thought had never occurred to me, what, after all, does circumcision have to do with him? Well, as I reflected more on it, on it and searched the scriptures, suddenly the patterns began to open up. How fitting it is that this, the sign of the old covenant and circumcision, was received by our mediator and savior, no less than that of the new covenant, the sign of baptism. In his one person, he joins himself to the old covenant as well as the new covenant, as he is the very source of the salvation found in and applied in both. Whereas the old covenant believers looked ahead to the Christ who was to come, we look back upon the Christ who has come, but we possess a very the very same faith, the very same salvation, the very same Christ. And so these two ordinances, these two sacraments, circumcision and baptism, they are to be closely compared. And 
I've chosen to focus on this teaching from the book of Colossians, for here is a very important place where the Apostle Paul draws a very close connection, which it is important for us to pay close attention to. In Colossians chapter 2 and verses 11 and 12, there we read, "...in whom also ye are circumcised." with the circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him up from the dead. the Lord's help, let us consider both the teaching of our catechism and in particular this text, under the theme circumcision and infant baptism, circumcision and infant baptism. And we will see in the first place circumcision expired, in the second place baptism instituted, and in the third place covenant children distinguished. Circumcision expired, baptism instituted, and covenant children distinguished. Well, this book of Colossians is a hugely important book in our New Testament. The glorious doctrine of Christ and salvation through him is most beautifully set forth. And it was written in a context in which the church was assaulted through a very complicated false teaching. Maybe as we were reading through the second chapter, you were seeking to piece together, well, what is it exactly he's responding to? On the one hand, they seem to be confused about the Old Testament law and the place of it. On the other hand, there there seems to be things about the worship of angels and so forth, which have no place in any understanding of the Old Covenant scriptures. So it seems as though what is attacking this church of Colossae, of um, of Colossae is some sort of hybrid of uh, Jewish religion, Jewish mysticism, and pagan philosophy. And Paul here is laboring to point them towards the one source of wisdom, the one source of salvation, the one source of godliness, and that is our blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the course of doing this, He is seeking to unfold the riches of salvation in Jesus Christ and the benefits of new covenant believers in a way that refutes the various misunderstandings that they may currently or in the future be seeking to combat. And it's in this context that he speaks of circumcision. Circumcision, as we'd already heard from our a sermon on the subject, was especially appointed as an ordinance for the Jewish church under the Old Covenant for those descendants of Abraham according to the flesh and those who are engrafted into the covenant people of God under that Old Covenant. They were those of whom it was said unto them in Genesis 17 and verse 10, God speaking, this is my covenant which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised and ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin and it shall be a token 
of the covenant betwixt me and you. It was a token or a sign of the covenant with Jehovah God for both Abraham and his posterity. It was that which marked off the church of the Jews under that old covenant, so precious and important. You read through the, the books of Moses, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, and you see how there were specific rules applied. It was to be on the eighth day that the child was to be circumcised, that cut in the flesh to set apart him unto the Lord's covenant. It was required that the one, in order to celebrate the great Passover feast and to be admitted into many other privileges of the worship of God, this sign of the covenant was necessary. And so it had carried through all the way into the coming of Christ. Christ himself had received circumcision, as well as the early uh, Jewish Christians who had um, been circumcised prior to their coming to Christ. They as well had received this ordinance. And then the question becomes, how are we to think about it now that Christ has come? Does circumcision continue to take the same place in the church of God? Is it obligatory in the way that it formally was? And it's important to understand that's the context here. It's not speaking about the merits or downsides of circumcision as a medical procedure or even as a family tradition. Rather, it's speaking about an act of religious worship which is appointed by God for the children of believers. Is that still required? Although well, clear teaching of the apostle here is, is not required, and he, but he speaks about it in a most fascinating way. You notice how he speaks in verse 11. Uh, maybe I'll begin reading at um, verse 10, where he's speaking of the glory of Christ. He says concerning these Christians, ye are complete in him which is the head of all principality and power, this glorious Christ who reigns over all things as the head. In him you are complete, he says. And then verse 11, in whom also ye are circumcised, with the circumcision made without hands. A circumcision without hands. See, what a... What a thing that would have been. You, as the, uh, as the religious authority in that day, the, the priest, would have been tasked by taking that knife within your hands and cutting the foreskin of that newborn baby boy, but eight days old. A somewhat dangerous procedure, certainly in those days, one with a certain amount of pain and bloodshed. Necessary, indeed. Pleasing to God, indeed. But uh, in its place, something which the apostle is saying has expired. Why? Because now you have something which is different than that in some respect. It is a circumcision without hands. How are we to understand that? Well, 
You see, there has always been an understanding in the scriptures about a circumcision which is done through the power of God. God intervening by his spirit to circumcise the heart. It was that that was spoken about in the book of Deuteronomy, for example, the 30th chapter in verse 5. And the Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed, and thou shalt possess it, and he will do thee good and multiply thee above thy fathers. And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all, with all sorry, that thou mayest live. So here we have an operation or a power of God which acts upon the soul, cutting off that which is amiss, removing that which separates from the fellowship of God, even that polluting and defiling sin nature. A spiritual transformation takes place through, as it were, a spiritual knife, cutting away that which formerly enslaved them unto the devil and implanting a new nature within them. It was this that that martyr Stephen spoke about where he gave his glorious sermon in Acts chapter 7, unfolding throughout the great history of the Old Testament church, how it was the Jews time after time had betrayed the Lord and slew the prophets leading all the way up unto their betrayal of the Messiah. And he concludes in this way, Acts 7 verse 51, ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. What is he saying here? Well, he's saying that indeed the circumcision which was granted unto the Jewish church was a great blessing, but it was always pointing to something greater than just a cut in the flesh, but a transformation of the heart. As we read this text in our sermon on the matter of circumcision, uh, it's, it does us well to read it again now from Romans chapter 2, verses 28 to 29. For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter whose praise is not of men, but of God. There you have it. The true Jew, the true man or woman of God is one who just doesn't have a mark in his body, but a true transformation in his soul. You must be born again. You must possess a new heart and a new nature in order to have true fellowship with God. A great work must be done. And here he speaks about it in this way, in whom ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You see, how is it that they were circumcised without hands? They were circumcised by Christ himself. Christ himself had used his Holy Spirit to perform this great action 
upon their souls. Christ himself had performed this operation not on the outer man, but on the inner man or woman. Christ himself had put off the body of the flesh. Here using a play upon words, but now not, now, not here talking about the flesh of the body as though it were a lump of skin, but rather the body of sin nature, which enslaves the unconverted person. And so it is that circumcision, while having this good purpose as a sign of regeneration, Under the old covenant, now the true heart of that, the reality of it is possessed by New Testament Christians. So the argument here is that where that is present under the New Testament, there is no necessary to have the visible or external cutting of the flesh. And... I think if you would compare this with other teaching in the New Testament, you see that it is particularly the coming of Christ, the coming of Christ, which has made this uh, ordinance to be expired. Turn with me to Galatians, Galatians chapter 2. Here in the book of Galatians, this is, of course, an important matter for the apostle to address. And what he is addressing here in Galatians chapter 2 is a confusion that had resulted, even among people as godly as Peter. They began to teach, you see, as well as people like James, that circumcision was required for Gentiles coming into the new covenant church. Yes, faith in Christ is well and good, but also circumcision. After all, it was required under the old covenant for believers. And yet here in Galatians chapter 2, begin reading at verse 14, Paul speaks very strongly on this matter. He says, But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? What is he talking about? Well, you see, Peter was sort of a fence straddler. Whenever you would have someone who uh, was of this conviction that Gentiles should be circumcised, he would sort of act in a different way around his Gentile brothers and sisters. Whereas before, he would eat with them and fellowship with them as soon as he sees someone from this uh, opinion coming, he would then distance himself from that person in order not to be perceived as doing something wrong. And he says, this is disorderly, this is wrong, this is contrary to Christ's teaching. Why? Well, look in verse 15. Who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even as we believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also 
are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin, God forbid. What is the argument here? Christ has come. Christ has come to fulfill the requirements under the old covenant. He has fulfilled the moral law in his person, perfectly keeping it. He has fulfilled all the ceremonial laws, the rituals, the sacrifices, even circumcision itself included in that ceremonial law. And so, having come and revealed the fullness of that message that we are saved not through our own works, but through the finished work of Christ, and that only by faith, now return back to circumcision, to take this up as it was indeed part of that ceremonial law, a law ordained for the church under those mosaic ceremonies. It would, in that sense, to be going back to the time before Christ. What was before a sign and seal of the righteousness of faith was, in that sense, a denial of the one whom we are to place faith in. Because it was a return to the ceremonial law, it bound those to it who took it up as a religious ordinance to fulfill all of the law, not only the ceremonial law, but the moral law as well, and that perfectly. Disastrous, he said. Of course, fooling through this as well is the reality of this Jew-Gentile division. Christ coming under the new covenant has made one people composed of Jews and Gentiles. As he says elsewhere, the middle wall of partition has been broken down. They are now one people composed of every nationality. And so to deny this and to separate ourselves from the Gentiles, it is to deny, in effect, the coming of Christ and an essential part of the gospel. Here you have it, a serious matter indeed. And so where Paul speaks about this elsewhere, he actually takes away the very name circumcision itself from those who would continue that sacrament. In Philippians chapter 3 and verses 2 and 3, listen to how strongly he speaks. He says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision." The mutilation, literally speaking, of these people who would require them to go back to the old covenant law and the ordinance of circumcision as dogs, as evil workers, as those who are mutilators. Verse 3, for we, the New Testament church, we Christians, we are the circumcision which worship God in spirit. And rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. There it is. They possess the true nature of circumcision. Though the external has faded away, yet the spiritual reality continues under the New Testament no less than the old. It has been abolished. It is not to be taken up as a religious ordinance. No, indeed, nothing of the ceremonial law can be seen as requiring upon the new, required for New Testament Christians. We ought to be clear upon this matter. The liberty of the Christian is indeed to be free from those ordinances and to be free to follow the more simple and 
uh, spiritual economy of the new covenant church. So we see that circumcision has expired as a sacrament. But notice how the thought continues in Paul's argument here in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. In whom ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. Now here we have a most important thing to notice. Not only circumcision expired, but baptism instituted. Where formerly he spoke of circumcision, now he speaks of baptism. It's one sentence, it's one thought, it is one argument. And he transitions most seamlessly from speaking of circumcision in the one verse and speaking of baptism in the next. Now, there's two ways that this can be understood. And and strictly speaking, I think the grammar would bear out either one of them. But both need to be duly considered. So you notice in verse 11, he speaks of the circumcision of Christ, that new work of the heart brought about in regeneration. And immediately thereafter, he says, buried with him in baptism. And so one way to understand this is that this is appositional, meaning they speak of the very same thing. What is the circumcision of Christ? Well, it is baptism itself. And so it is that the the Belgic Confession in its teaching about baptism takes it in that way, that baptism is spoken of as the circumcision of Christ. Well, indeed it may be another way to understand this, however, is that this is uh, advancing the thought, right? You have the true circumcision, that circumcision of the heart, and likewise you are buried with Christ in baptism, wherein ye are risen with him through faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. Well, here you have to see that even if that is a technically new thought, where you have the circumcision of Christ, the uh, regeneration, and as well as you have the sacrament of baptism, you still need to see that it is not utterly changing the thought there. It is speaking of union with Christ. It is speaking of spiritual life, having risen with him. In what sense are we risen with Christ, if not spiritually? And in what sense can we speak of being spiritually risen with Christ, except that we partake of that new life in regeneration grace? Well, indeed, even if you would take it in that way, not as appositional, but as a new thought, well, it's not, it's clearly not a change of subject utterly, no. Indeed, it is most fitting that through this sacramental language that the new state of the Christian is spoken of in connection with both circumcision and baptism because both are what? A sacrament, an external visible sign pointing towards the invisible grace signified. How is it that Paul can speak in this way except that they are connected, except that indeed one has come in the place of the other? Circumcision 
expired under the old covenant. Baptism come in its place. Baptism. How high and lofty does he speak of it here? You are buried with him, buried with Christ in your baptism. Ye also are risen with him through faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. You see, here is a sign of the grace signified, but also a seal of that grace to those who appropriate the gospel in true faith. You, Christian, as you are tempted towards various sins in your life, as indeed you are assaulted in various ways by your faith, is it not so encouraging to you that Christ has come personally in your baptism and by his spirit he assures you in that baptism that you are his? That his death is your death. That his resurrection is your resurrection. That the faith that he grants you is his own particular gift. It is a high thing, baptism. Never to be denigrated. Never to be thought lightly of. We are to consider our baptism. Consider all of the promises set forth there. Not, of course, to rest in the external water. As though some ritual was that which guaranteed you an interest in Christ? No. But rather seeing that so great and glorious is this Savior, so wonderfully personally has he come close unto you that you cannot but trust in him, you cannot but commit yourself unto him. Here is the high place of baptism spoken of here in particular. Baptism has been instituted in the place of circumcision. Notice how Matthew Poole, the great Puritan expositor, speaks here. He says of Paul, He shows that in Christ they who, found, they who are found have not only the thing signified, but right to the outward sign and seal, vis-a-vis baptism. In the room of circumcision abolished, the death and burial of Christ is not only the exemplar, but the cause of the death of the old man, signed and sealed in baptism. It's also in other places Paul speaks in this way. He says in Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, of the salvation of Christians, not by works of righteousness which we have done, But according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. The renewing of the Holy Ghost, regeneration, themselves spoken of in the washing of baptism. Why? Is it because the water is what regenerates? No, but it is that sign and seal of regeneration. And so it is properly and according to sacramental language, put in the place of, circ- of, the, of the sign itself. Here we have a most glorious connection drawn here. And is it any wonder, really, the connection drawn? You notice that throughout Old Testament and New Testament, while we can say that the entire covenant of grace, all the benefits of Christ, whether justification or sanctification or glorification, are signified and sealed in the sign of the covenant, 
the language usually errs on the side of, of that first grace whereby the Holy Spirit unites you to Christ. Regeneration. And is it any accident that that is a grace in which we are utterly passive? We do not act upon anything in order to receive this grace. No, it is God who acts upon us. God working in us grants this grace. And so how fitting that the initiatory right for, for both uh, believers and their children, children who cannot so much as lift up their heads, so young and frail are they, yet they are able to passively receive, according to God's sovereign good pleasure, the grace of regeneration. And so where they are able to receive the one grace, they are also able to receive the sign of it. Of course, we do not say by this that there are not also differences between the two. Clearly, there are differences. Surely, even some of you parents have had to answer this question. Well, if baptism has come in the place of circumcision, is it okay that girls are baptized? After all, it was only boys who were circumcised. Is it, is it okay that we baptize girls? Well, of course it is. In Acts chapter 8, verse 12, we read there of Philip's ministry, and there we, we read, but when they believed, Philip preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized, both men and women. So clearly there is that difference. It belongs to both men and women. Surely we would not deny that women were included in some way under the sign of circumcision and that they were included under the headship of their fathers, their brothers, and their husbands. But how much better is the new covenant? Now the sign of the covenant granted to both men and women and boys and girls in a glorious display of the Lord's grace. There's this difference as well. One was bloody, a bloody sacrament. There was pain, there was crying, there was the knife applied with hands. Now indeed an external washing, which is painless, which is pure, which is most befitting the coming of Christ. Having done away with the old covenant ceremonies, and as well as bring about the salvation through his shed blood. How fitting that baptism should come in its place. Indeed, we also recognize this. There is something particular to the Jews belonging in circumcision. Some Gentiles received it, yes. But it was particularly obligatory for the Jewish people as the descendants of Abraham. It also connected them to a, a visible land there in Canaan. Such things are particular to the Old Covenant. They separate the Jews off. They bind them to a particular uh, place of real estate. And such things have no place in baptism. The blessings which they signify indeed point, together, point towards a better country, that new heavens and the new earth wherein righteousness dwells. The things they speak of are not so much temporal blessings and uh, and things of, of this world, but rather spiritual blessings, even salvation in Jesus Christ. And so where we do say that one has come in the place of the other, as the scriptures teach, yet we also recognize various differences between the two and in this way do justice 
to the teaching of the word of God. Well, there we see that we have uh, circumcision abolished. We have baptism instituted. In the third and final place, we see covenant children distinguish. Covenant children distinguish. Well, this would be an implication of the text of Paul here, where we would say that both baptism and circumcision pointed towards the very same graces of the of the new of the um, of the covenant of grace in Jesus Christ, where we would say one is abolished and the other put in its place. We are now able to put the whole package together. We're able to look across God's dealings across the whole uh, history of the church and see how one, the practice of one ordinance, can inform our practice of the other. And of course, this, the catechism summarized this beautifully, did it not? It says there, They must therefore, speaking of children, by baptism as a sign of the covenant, be also admitted into the Christian church and be distinguished from the children of unbelievers. As was done in the old covenant or testament by circumcision, instead of which baptism is instituted in the new covenant. Here you see putting these things together. That was, of course, how the old covenant church was especially set apart from all other religions. They were circumcised in their foreskins. Now, baptism fulfills that same place for the church today, even as it is spoken of in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. You see, when it comes to those things which mark off the entire universal Catholic in the proper sense, church, we speak of only this that uh, is used as that external marking, that of baptism as that which initiates us into the new covenant church. And so it is that where we would understand that the children of believers under the old covenant receive that initiatory sign of circumcision, well, there really is a principle established where baptism must likewise be applied under that principle. Where indeed Paul can speak of baptism as the circumcision of Christ, or at any rate come in the place of circumcision under the old covenant, then we have to ask the question, what right have we to adjust the practice that was clearly established to both believers and their seed? Well, indeed, it requires a justification, but there is no justification for him. What God has joined together, let no man separate. What God has commanded, let no man seek to quibble about. God has spoken in this matter, congregation, and we ought to be most firm in it. And the, it's interesting that in the Baptist world, there are various ways in which something is very clearly lacking even in their own understanding, for they have practices that seem to make up for the practice of infant baptism. Take one example. You have the, uh, the, um, the setting apart children uh, to be set apart to the service of the Lord. This will happen at 
after a child is born into a Baptist church, they, they come up to the beginning of the service and the pastor just pronounces a blessing upon the children or indeed prays that the, that the Lord would, would help them in some way. A special part of the service just for children. And what could that, uh, what could that serve according to a Baptist understanding except that God does have a claim upon those children? And yet upon their understanding, there is no external mark to set them apart to that like under the old covenant. And so the new covenant is then seen as inferior to the old. A blessing given to believers and their children under the old covenant now neglected under the new. And the visibility of God's grace and love is then depreciated under the new where it was more fully seen in the old, something which goes flatly against the character of our God and the whole tenor of the covenant of grace. The new covenant, you see, is never a step backward, but a step forward. Never uh, going uh, away from privileges, but an advancing and an increasing of privileges. I think it is also seen in this way, that where you have the uh, principle that baptism is not to be applied until a profession of faith can be given, what you find is that a profession of faith is demanded of children much earlier, much earlier than is healthy. You have children as young as seven or eight or six who are baptized. Why? Because they've made a profession of faith in Christ. Indeed, the practice of our churches, while not absolutely prohibiting such, is ordinarily to encourage our children, to evangelize our children, to indeed uh, point them to the Lord Jesus Christ. But where we would admit them to the full privileges of the church, it would be upon a confession of faith in Christ, which is examined, which is tested, which is shown the measure of time so that so that we are not uh, teaching our children that they are to do this simply out of pressure or simply out of tradition, but rather out of sincerity and of the discerning of the work of God in their lives. Indeed, I think what you would see is in the great many of Baptist churches, there is simply a depreciation of the doctrine of a confession of faith precisely because it is delayed until, um, uh, until the children can speak such. Until baptism is, baptism is delayed until children can give a confession of faith, I mean. And so for those reasons, what you see is that various problems result from this. But for us, how is it that we should instruct our children? We should instruct them in this way. You have been set apart unto God's covenant. You have been distinguished from the children of unbelievers with this great privilege, included in the visible church, presented with the promises of salvation in Jesus Christ, and even given the sign and seal of that covenant. You think of those words that are spoken from our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. 
What a privileged congregation. The very name of God, the very triune name placed upon them in their baptism. Them joined unto the triune God in their baptism. A privilege, yes, which is not to be substituted for a true conversion of the heart, but is indeed to be pressed upon them. That they would see that they have no right to remain, a lo- uh, remain far from God. They have no right to reject the gospel. But the solemn pri- privileges of God's covenant come with the responsibility that they must turn from their sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is the teaching concerning baptism and our children, the connection of circumcision and baptism. As we weigh these things up in our hearts, let us be overwhelmed with the awesome privilege that the Lord has given unto us, both with the great salvation of Jesus Christ and the visible sign of it. Let us use it to stir up our faith in him. Amen.